Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Hi, I'm Brad Davis. Oh, and I'm Lombardo. And welcome to another episode of Phrenesis. Today, we are going to be discussing an essay by the French theorist Michel Foucault entitled What is Enlightenment? Wherein he discusses a brief article, brief essay by Immanuel Kant. Once again, Will was the one who chose this essay. Well, could you maybe tell us what it was that initially interested you about this or, or, or what's so cool about it? And then maybe give us a little bit of a background, particularly on Kant. Sure. So one of the reasons this essay is interesting is not not so much uh, to me, at least, that I find it uh, to be incredibly persuasive, uh, you know, at least in its entirety, uh, but because it provides um, a specific and very well thought out answer uh, or answer or explanation of a concept that we and I use we to talk about you know people who think about these things for fun or for or professionally uh, throw around a lot and um, have no definite definition or conception of and you know that's the word enlightenment uh where you talk about the enlightenment and people in favor of or who think it was a tragedy uh you know use use the word as if it refers to a definite concept like you can point to the enlightenment like you can point to a tree or something uh, and say oh yeah that's what it is uh, when in fact it's nothing of the sort. And so there's a tradition in uh, the history of political, or not even political, but you know, intellectual history or cultural criticism to pinpoint what enlightenment or the enlightenment is. Uh, and uh, Foucault thinks that Kant inaugurated this tradition uh, and there are, uh, you know, others who attempt to explain it. Weber offers an explanation, but, uh, but Foucault is going to place himself in this lineage of thinkers who tried to define, uh, you know, what the concept of enlightenment is, uh, but he thinks in a very different way. Uh, than it had been before cool yeah so uh the background on this the essay that Foucault is discussing uh again was written by Immanuel Kant and was submitted as a response to uh a German was published as a response to a German magazine uh, that was trying to understand what is the Enlightenment. 
uh, and they received a, a few responses. Uh, one of one, one of them, uh, Foucault notes as particularly interesting and preceding uh, was uh, one by Moses Mendelssohn, and throughout this essay of Foucault's, he's trying to understand the unique way Kant seems to break down the question of enlightenment. And Foucault thinks this is the fundamental question of modern philosophy to try and understand what he says to try and answer the question raised so imprudently two centuries ago, what is enlightenment? And so over the course of this essay, he comes up with a few different difficulties and aspects that need to be reconciled throughout. Um, but the first ones he notes is that there are tensions, fundamental tensions between Jewish and German thought interacting here in the question of enlightenment. And there's fundamental problems between enlightenment and the concept of Christianity throughout the ages. And this is particularly present in, this is particularly the case in the example of what exactly the concept of the, of the now, of present, represents. And Foucault sort of traces three different possibilities, that the present is an era all its own, this moment is completely severed from the past, from the future, that the now and history are, are don't have a connection. And this, in some ways, is very similar to what we were discussing the other week uh, when we were when we had the episode on uh, Walter Benjamin's. Uh, <laughs> this is very similar to uh, the the concept uh, that was presented in the other episode we recorded on Walter Benjamin's theses on the philosophy of history. Foucault also says that the present be, can be understood as providing clues that may help to predict future events. And he references St. Augustine as providing a historical hermeneutic akin to this then he also provides the possibility that the present is a moment of transition to the future, that the now is setting up the conditions for what might be future revolution, future utopia, for anything of the sort, we're in the building stages of it, perhaps perpetually. But Foucault thinks that Kant rejects all of this, all these concepts of the present, and instead presents enlightenment as a withdrawal from from the present, from from time, from history, perhaps. Could you explain what that withdrawal is to us, Will? Right. So the way Kant defines enlightenment uh, in this ex, uh, essay is. Uh, use the word withdrawal for code uh you know translates it but interprets it as a, an exit uh or a way a way out um and so and so you know what 
what that what that means is a way out of you know what had been prevailing to that point and so his understanding is that the the enlightenment introduces some kind of break with the pre-enlightenment uh and so uh you know the exit is from some aspect of uh, the pre-enlightenment passed towards some kind of enlightened future where the enlightenment is the transition, the exit between the two. And so what Khan is trying to do there is to paint a difference between, and Foucault says, draw a difference between the enlightenment and the pre-enlightenment. For Kant, as Foucault understands him, the enlightenment poses a significant challenge in its way out and that is out a separate to dare to know to have the courage to question the audacity to understand the world the application of reason and Kant sees the present state of man or, or the way most people act as as a sort of immaturity where one just accepts the will of another follows the laws follows the rules and he, he provides two key examples immaturity is accepting the will of books of spiritual directors of doctors instead of pursuing knowledge or morality or health in its own terms on your own instead of using reason accepting external orders and guidance but there is another problem that stems from this insofar as Kant seems to think that all of mankind is contained in the enlightenment of history that that everyone is wrapped up in this uh, exit and that poses some problems uh, uh, in terms of how maturity is achieved or, or whether everyone is or can uh, leave a state of immaturity. Right. This is a problem uh, for Kant because he, um, the way he describes it is almost as a kind of conversion. Um, but, but where the person makes a decision uh, or some switch flips internally uh that that they become enlightened that they decide to stop living in a state of immaturity uh and it's a little unclear how exactly that's supposed to be done um but then as you say he also paints this picture of all of history being wrapped up in this exit uh, and so what you can see there is this uh, sort of teleological history that elides very easily into someone like Hegel. Um, but that it's unclear how widespread enlightenment is supposed to happen if all it comes down to is people daring to know, people deciding to uh exit their states of immaturity and be you know uh in, intrepid users of reason 
and so the means uh, of achieving maturity of rejecting uh, authority is presented with a couple examples that one might pay their taxes despite severe disagreements with the amount or how it's used or the government itself that one might lead worship lead a parish despite having serious theological qualms but Foucault's careful to note that this isn't what we've historically conceived of as freedom of conscience. This isn't a, a think whatever you want, but do as you must, uh, as society commands. That would still be the immaturity of following authority. And this is where enlightenment becomes transformative. The enlightenment brings about public reason, free public reason as opposed to just private reason of thinking despite cohering with the the orders of authority. Foucault says that Kant, in conclusion, proposes to Frederick II in scarcely veiled terms a sort of contract, what might be called the contract of rational despotism with free reason. The public and free use of autonomous reason will be the best guarantee of obedience, on condition, however, that the political principle that must be obeyed itself be in conformity with universal reason. And I have to admit, this is a point where I, I started to get a little confused in this essay, and, and I don't think I have nearly as much grounding in Kant as you do. Could you help elucidate this distinction between public and private reason? And, and how is it that that politics could follow some sort of universal reason? Could, could you explain this a little? Right. Well, I think the, the, the first thing to note is that for Kant, the, 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 uh, the function of... Uh, reason for Kant is not uh, dialectical in the sense that what he's not really talking about is a, a group of people talking amongst themselves, uh, you know, to arrive at some rationally determined policy. So it's not, it's not so much an action for him. Um, and so, you know, what, what he's, one of the things that for reason uh, leads you to is a sense of duty um, and that's performing your you know ordained or chosen um, station in life uh, with uh, um, you know, that's, that's performing your chosen or ordained uh, station in life with the, with a sense of uh, duty, which is not that, you know, your completely uninhibited reason can undermine what you're supposed to be doing day to day at any time. So if you are the, um, you know, uh, you mentioned the head of a parish, uh, then you're, you know, wildly unrestrained speculative reason that leads you to uh, all of these, you know, uh, you know, you start to chip away at 
theological dogma or something because that's what your reason enables you to do um that that can't come at the expense of you disregarding all of your responsibilities to other people um and so it's not this uh you know one of the one of the things we talk about is how uh corrosive philosophy can be to public order um and you know part of Kant's project is to radically restrict the scope of what philosophy can tell us um and the other is to show how it can be you know amenable to maintaining a public order and you know in that sense one of the things that reason shows you is that you ought to do your duty uh and that you ought to uphold the responsibilities uh that you've undertaken uh as part of your social role uh and 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 so in that sense when he talks about free reason that's not what we might think of when we first hear it as like i said wildly unrestrained speculation about anything or using reason uh you know to break down every social structure uh that is somehow unreasonable um it's much more restricted in scope to that and than that and so you know he thinks that in a public sense that restricted in scope reason uh can be allowed to be free but that 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 won't and shouldn't come at the expense of you know you abandoning all of your responsibilities uh because they somehow run counter to what your speculative reason tells you. In what, and in what manner does enlightenment, it's per, in particular, this this exit, change the nature of public reason? Well, in in one sense, it makes political life more, as Kant would say, rational. The structures of political life are coming uh, closer to what would be reasonable political structures. Um, so you end up with, uh, you know, enlightened, rational despotism, uh, rather than, you know, a backwards Catholic monarchy or something like that. Uh, and that the enlightened, you know, the, as the political structures, uh, uh, become more enlightened and embodied reason, uh more and more that coincides with people also becoming more and more rational more and more enlightened and seeing the reason inherent uh in the political structures so they can secure so the political structures can secure the allegiance of the uh increasingly enlightened people so that there's not uh there's not this real tension between you know, an, an enlightened group of people in a really backwards, uh, you know, he would say political structures that um, they coincide. And so rational people can see the reason inside the political structures. And in that way, it can guarantee their obedience. But a, a more reasonable political order is not necessarily a better or more cohesive or more in any way good effective order is it 
Uh, well, I think from Kant's point of view, yes, it is. Uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to lie too much into Rawls, uh, who takes or borrows and transforms a lot of this from Kant. But you know the the idea is that because people are uh, basically rational or see that being rational is uh, better uh, or a, a, a more fulfilling way of life, even though they don't always live up to it, that a rational political order that they would choose being their most reasonable selves would be the most cohesive and create the greatest sense of obligation because there's nothing that can create a sense of obligation as much as you know what reason demands of you and living as an autonomous rational person is the highest form of life for Kant uh, and being a and so the most rational form of government is the one that allows people to live as rational, autonomous people. So there's not a, there's there's no disconnect between the form of government and the form of the person in that sense for Kant. Um, and so while we might say the the form of government he draws up would never bring about the level of cohesion uh, or a sense of political order. Uh, that he would, I think that's be, would be because we start from a very different anthropology at, uh, from him. That uh, we would say people uh, are not driven uh, toward this uh, idealized, uh, rational, independent person uh, that, you know, Kant seems to really think that that's how people want to live and that that is the best form of life that once they see it their sense of dignity will uh you know tell them that that's how they ought to live and and that and that part of that reason then uh is that they feel a sense of obligation um a sense of allegiance to uh a political order that's also rational Cool, cool. I would like to transition a bit, because at this point, Foucault does something a little odd in his essay. Um, you know, he, he started this essay out by saying, enlightenment is uh, the question, what is enlightenment is a question posed by modern philosophy. But he never discusses what he means by modernity or modern philosophy he goes straight in, into what is enlightenment and part of it may be that um Kant isn't really addressing this concept of modernity and so simultaneously while he's shifting topics uh Foucault's also shifting away from Kant and into his own thought and it's really right I think go ahead so I think right Kant doesn't mention the word modernity um, and it's interesting that Foucault basically says that the entire history of modern philosophy has basically been 
trying to answer this question. Uh, and so what's interesting about that is that the unspoken assumption then of modern philosophy, and that includes Kant, uh, is that, you know, these philosophers think of themselves as modern and enlightened. Um, that's not something that they ever feel the need to prove. Uh, or to, there's, and you can't in a sense, you can't, you know, deduct that you're a modern person. Um, and so there's some sense that uh, we're living in a point that's so radically different from uh, what came before it. And I think we're living in a point that, or in a period of time where we think of ourselves uh, as somehow having broken from a pre-modern past, uh, but that that's kind of unspoken. And I think this is exactly what Foucault is getting at, at in trying to conceptualize what modernity is. What, what you just said, that we broke from our past. So, so Foucault is asking whether modernity constitutes a sequel to the Enlightenment and its development, or if it's a rupture, a deviation from the basic principles of the 18th century and prior. What is it that makes modernity unique? And Foucault says it, it's not an epoch, it's not a time, it's not some invention, it's an attitude, it's a mood, an ethos, and particularly one that's best understood in reference to counter-modernity, which is weird that he's defining it by its negative at first, and it takes him a, a little bit before he comes up with a, a fairly simple characterization. Modernity is heroizing the present. It's elevating the now above everything that's occurred previously. And as Will just said, it's that transition, it's that break. But it's sort of inputting or imagining and grandizing the fact that there is a break or that there is a uh, transition. At some point, something happened and now we are enlightened. We're not like it was before. History is at its zenith at this moment. And that, for Foucault, is what modernity represents. And one of... Go ahead. And I think you're right about that's at the expense of the past, that heroizing the now is at the expense of the past, but uh, that also uh, withdraws the horizon that stretches out to the future um that and we can talk about you know future in the the uh you know religious in the christian sense of you know not just like making a plan for 20 years from now but you know talking about what happens after you die uh but that I think what he also means there is that there's a um, where someone like Heidegger say thinks that um, people live basically oriented toward the future. Um, that there's also a withdrawal there. Um, that the 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 orientation towards the future is withdrawn back into the present. Um, 
And so it's not just that there was a break from the past and we need to conceive of ourselves that way. But I think that also um, comes at the expense of a certain kind of future orientedness. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, which is very strange. And I'm not sure if I just wasn't a, a close enough reader, but it seems to me that you picking out Christianity there is quite apt. If we return back to the, the beginnings of the essays, I mentioned that Foucault notices there's a three problems with how you conceptualize the present between Christianity and the sense of enlightenment. And it seems like he hasn't decided which of the competing concepts modernity represents. Whether it is, as you're saying, a moment of transition to the future and that could be christian eschatology it could just as well be uh through a marxist framework or any other sort of liberating materialistic framework whether the present is a moment all its own or, or whether again the moment the present is so valuable because it's a building block to the future or it can be used to predict the future he doesn't seem to come down as to what the present represents or, or even really judge Kant's rejection or correction to these that it's just that that modernity is is a heroizing of the present and then he goes that can come either as a sort of self-satisfaction um where you know as enlightened people we can just sit on our laurels in the present uh you know, as the the apex of all progress, um, but that's not how he thinks of it either. Yeah, and um, to help him him think through it, Foucault starts making frequent reference and sort of digresses onto the French poet Baudelaire. Now, Will, you recently wrote a pretty interesting reflection on Baudelaire. Could you help me understand what Foucault's trying to get at by by bringing him in? And, and I mean, I think he deals with Baudelaire almost as much, perhaps more than he deals with Kant on, on this essay about Kant. Right, and I, I actually I will bring up that at least on my reading, this isn't an essay about Kant, but that how Kant inaugurates a again inaugurates a tradition that. Um, Foucault wants to critique and take up himself uh, and that Baudelaire also finds himself in this tradition uh, as someone who's finding a way to uh, uh, define modernity but not in a, a, a systematically philosophical way um and so what Foucault sees as valuable uh in Baudelaire is that Baudelaire sees the way that an artist can transform what is present and so he says that Baudelaire seems to be saying what he defines modernity as 
the ephemeral, the fleeting, and the contingent. But for him, being modern does not lie in recognizing and accepting this perpetual movement uh, of ephemerality or fleetingness or contingency. It lies in adopting a certain attitude with respect to this movement. And this deliberate, difficult attitude consists in recapturing something eternal that is not in the present instant but or behind it, but within it. And that this is an attitude. Um, you know, this is not a, a, a set of sociocultural conditions that we can recognize and say, aha, that's modernity. Uh, but that the, the modern person can see a lot of you know, those conditions, which are uh, to some extent just historical contingencies uh, and, and see something in them that can be transformed. And so the, the heroization of the now is not the reigning actualized conditions, it's that there's something within them that can be uh, taken beyond themselves. Um, and just as a way of, uh, of driving that home, um, uh, Baudelaire writes about Constantine Guy, uh, a painter um, who he contrasts with a flaneur, uh, which is basically someone who uh, takes a stroll down the street and, uh, you know, takes it all in. Uh, but just as it is, it's a, it's a passive observer. Whereas the attitude the artist takes um, is mediating between, Foucault says, what is real in the exercise of freedom. It's applying freedom to what is, um, to take something within what is and I guess blow it up beyond itself. Um, where natural things become more than natural, beautiful things become more than beautiful, and individual objects appear endowed with the pulse of life like the soul of their creator. And this isn't what Foucault sets out to do, but it's a sort of artistic analogy um, for what below Foucault is going to take to be the attitude of modernity. Foucault makes a couple more things explicit over the course of this. One being that despite what I, I do think is sort of a common equivocation, that enlightenment and humanism are not the same thing, neither in Kant's mind nor in his own. That, that um, all the things wrapped up in, in humanism, secular humanism, are distinct and not sure even necessarily caused by the Enlightenment, uh, maybe with their own own causal structure. Foucault is also very clear, and this this kind of surprised me in contrast to the the popular conception of his works. Foucault is pensive that trying to change contemporary life, trying to force 
or, or reach in mass a state of maturity is not possible via theory or even to the extent that it might be is a dangerous task and lurking honestly throughout this whole essay it is but unmentioned very much is the specter of nazism uh and the the difficulties that uh between strains of german and jewish thought that would eventually lead into the the conflict uh under nazism foucault doesn't think that any theory of transformation to reinvent social life as attempted under Soviet Union or or Nazi Germany is worthwhile. It is fundamentally dangerous. What he says instead must be done is reflection and improvement on relationships and structures, not on society itself. And this was a really interesting distinction uh, for me that, that obviously he continues to work at in, in his other writings, but, but it's reflecting on power structures and power relationships or, or sexual relationships or anything of the sort and searching for incremental changes in this realm. That's what, what should be sought after to reach maturity, not changing society. What, what did you think about that? Right. Right. I don't know that maturity is the standard that he's aiming for here. Um, It's a common uh, critique leveled at Foucault that I think is unfair. And it's also one leveled at um, Derrida, that they have no uh, positive conception of something that is good. And all they aim to do is deconstruct uh, power relationships uh, and different systems, uh, you know, to the end that nothing remains. That they've basically torn torn apart everything that we recognize as society. Um, and I think Foucault shows here, among other places, that that's not what he's aiming out to do. Uh, And that he does have a concept of the good or the better. Um, But I think it's more something like a really radical liberation. Um, And by that, I mean the ability to um, be self-made kind of in any direction one wants. Um, so it's a, it's a really extremely experimental lifestyle uh, and that that's what that's what he's aiming at more than for Khan it's a very abstract um, kind of dignified, reasonable person uh, who seems to be very uh, restrained uh, and, you know, really limited 
uh, in his actions by the moral law. Uh, and I think Foucault doesn't, uh, what Foucault has in mind is not that kind of maturity, but again, more of a, something more like a, taking a paintbrush to life, uh, an artistic transformation of life, uh, sort of like what Baudelaire has in mind. Um, and that the, you know, continual self-making and self-remaking and kind of whatever direction one pleases is what he has in mind. Um, but I, I, I think you're, I think you're right that a, um, a radical instantaneous remaking of society is not what he has in mind. Um, but you have, he thinks, to see what of your surroundings are contingent and therefore ephemeral and things that can be done away with. Um, and that's where his practice of genealogy um, comes into play. Yeah, I, I think that's helpful. Thank you. So the last little bit uh, of this essay, I really enjoyed. I don't always love Foucault's prose, but I thought this was pretty good. He writes, I do not know whether we will ever reach mature adulthood. Many things in our experience convince us that the historical event of enlightenment did not make us mature adults. and We have not reached that stage yet. However, it seems to me that a meaning can be attributed to that critical interrogation on the present and on ourselves, which Kant formulated by reflecting on the Enlightenment. It seems to me that Kant's reflection is even a way of philosophizing that has not been without its importance or effectiveness during the last two centuries. The critical ontology of ourselves has to be considered not certainly as a theory, a doctrine, or even a permanent body of knowledge that is accumulating. It has to be conceived of as an attitude, an ethos, a philosophical life in which the critique of what we are is at one and the same time the historical analysis of the limits that are imposed on us in an experiment with the possibility of going beyond them. I do not know whether it must be said today that the critical task that still entails faith and enlightenment, I continue to think that this task requires work on our limits, that is, a patient labor giving form to our impatience for liberty. There is a lot going on uh, in this conclusion. I really like that last line in particular. Again, this is, it's really helpful for understanding what his project is because he has, a lot of his other works are on really specific topics that can almost seem like sociological works more than, uh, than works of philosophy. Um, and and what he says here and i think what those works aim to set out to do is again he's concerned with liberating ourselves so it's finding the uh what constrains our action uh our, our ability to make and remake ourselves um and you know so you know, in some ways, those are unconscious controls of media. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's very explicit control of the law, or uh, 
you know, power dynamics and sexual relationships. Um, and of course this thought was, uh, you know, was taken and applied to context of uh, relationships between races. Um, and all of those are, you know, in, in a sense, barriers to the liberation that we should be striving for. Uh, and a way that we can move beyond those barriers is to do what, um, I mean, Foucault didn't name genealogy, but what he also sees as genealogy. Um, and uh, he's very influenced by Nietzsche in this. He has an essay uh, on Nietzsche and genealogy. And you know, Nietzsche, of course, um, sketched a genealogy of Christianity, basically. And what it does is basically... Um, breaks down and shows kind of the unrealness or the arbitrariness or the contingency of something that is oppressive or is constraining. And so Nietzsche does this by breaking down, you know, Christianity, the religion of love. And, you know, he claims to show that it basically arises from hatred, uh, which is basically makes it absurd. And, and, uh, Foucault does this with a lot of, um, you know, modern social structures. So if you think about something like discipline and punish, um, you know, what he's basically trying to do is give lie to the notion um, that because around the Enlightenment we roll back, uh, you know, really overt forms of political oppression that we're somehow much freer and it's showing all the ways that we're subliminally uh controlled or that um you know prisons especially uh make us unfree and it's uh, you know a task of basically breaking down a lot of what exists around us so that we can see that it's, you know, basically arbitrary and can be done away with. Uh, and I think the paragraph you read um, is a really succinct summary of why we would want to do that or why Foucault thinks we would want to do that. And I know also think it's worth underlining that the genealogical approach even destruction deconstruction these are very much picking up with the dare to know it, it, it is very much trying to understand and recognize as many facets of life as is possible and in that way seems very much very much a product of the enlightenment and probably perhaps impossible without it seems like in some ways uh, few 
few philosophers, say Nietzsche and Foucault and those like them, have been have been so devoted to to daring to know. Right, and it's it's I mean it's interesting, or you know we should ask what are they knowing, in that sense. Is there any positive knowledge that comes from that? Um, because there's, you know, in, in one sense, you can get a grasp of structures by finding the reason inherent in them. Um, that there's, that there's some reasonableness in most everything that exists. And so you can try to make them more reasonable, um, or to accept them as they are because of their reasonableness, but that's not what Foucault's doing. Um, and he says something um, that the historical analysis of the limits, constraints, uh, and that tends to get converted to oppression now, better imposed on us an experiment with the possibility of going beyond them. Um, so the, the knowledge that you get by finding and breaking down these limits is once you see the limit to know that it's a limit, you have to know what's beyond the limit, basically. Um, and so you end up with a fuller knowledge of human possibility just by recognizing that a limit exists there. So I think that's the knowledge that Foucault thinks deconstruction can give you. You end up with the, you know, a knowledge of ourselves and the circumstances we find ourselves in. But a byproduct or maybe a precondition of doing that um, is that you need to you need an understanding of alternative possibilities um, to really be able to grasp that there are limits being put on ourselves. Cool. I, I really enjoyed this essay. Um, I, I always feel like Foucault does deserve more attention than he's given, particularly on the right. He, he is a serious thinker, and he's got interesting insights. And I, there, he is, uh, especially in France, getting more... Um, respect from at least a certain sector of the French right um, you know who, who recognize that he maybe not in everything but in certain um, aspects of what he does gives an accurate diagnosis of and he's not that uh, you know the, the apex of his career wasn't that long ago um, so that he gives an accurate diagnosis of, you know, the world we find ourselves in, at least in some areas. Um, you know, even even if we don't like what he recommends, based on that. And we might have made mention of it previously. I'll drop the link in the show notes. But there is an excellent essay by Mark Lilla in the New York Review of Books that that. Uh, I think Will's referencing, or even if not, uh, helps discuss what what he's he just brought up about sort of the the continental right. Uh, that's exact interacting more with critics. That's exactly what I'm yeah. referencing, and it's 
that uh, um, it's called Two New Roads for the French Right. Uh, and this is a tangent, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because it's interesting. Um, that the right in France is basically torn between the kind of brute populism of the Le Pens and a um, uh, really interesting, um, really youthful movement um, of you know they're they're Catholic thinkers but who have really found a lot to borrow from uh, people who make American conservatives hair stand on end um, for some reason. Uh, and um, so I you know, encourage you to, in, to read that. And um, uh, I, you know, I think they put forth a very compelling um, Uh, 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 a coherent and distinct ideology of conservatism that than what we're used to in the United States. It's a really refreshing challenge. Right. Right. And they, you know, they, they make use of prominent figures who are not prominent for no reason. Um, and who have, who have a lot to offer like Foucault, a lot to offer, um, you know, even if we don't want to take it all wholesale, which, you know, I, I, I certainly don't from Foucault. I don't think you would either, but um, he had, he does have a, a lot of really sharp insight to offer. Cool. Well, with that, thank you all very much for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed these last several episodes. We've got some cool stuff planned for the future. Each time we release one, our audience keeps growing, and that's really great and exciting to see. If there's anything you want us to cover, an essay you want us to discuss, let us know. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a review. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us on our website. Thank you very much. <laughs>